Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've had some amazing guests on Fraudology. We've had people who have worked at Apple and Google and Ticketmaster and Etsy and Novo and PayPal and Capital One, some of the biggest banks and financial institutions and e-commerce and marketplaces in the world. And oftentimes, or almost all the time, we're talking about different pieces of fraud prevention, of online fraud, whether it's specific tactics like account takeover, refund fraud abuse, or whether we are talking about the master manipulator ring that really attacked dozens of the biggest online retailers during the holiday season this past year. It's always fun to get to talk to fraud fighters, and I love being able to introduce you all to your peers, and I love the community that we're building. I'm just very proud of it. But I also sometimes want to interview people who aren't necessarily in our industry, but who we can learn from. And today, my guest is no exception. It's a different type of guest, but I am so excited about it. So I got a chance to have a conversation with Robert Kerbeck. He's the author of the book Ruse, Lying, the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. He lived a really crazy life, and he very openly shared it all in this book. And there's a lot that we can learn. It's not just entertaining, but just to pull a little bit of an excerpt from the description of the book to give you a little bit of idea of the life that Robert lived for you know the first half of his adult career. After college, Kerbick rushed to New York to try to make it as an actor, but to support himself, he'd need a survival job. And before he knew it, while his pals were waiting tables, he began his apprenticeship as a corporate spy. As his acting career started to take off, he found himself hobnobbing with Hollywood luminaries, drinking with Paul Newman, taking J-Lo to a Dodgers game on a date, touring the set of ER with George Clooney. He even worked with O.J. Simpson the week before he became America's most notorious double murderer. And as he will share in this interview, actually had someone or someone had to play Robert in The People versus O.J. Simpson, the TV show, which I think as an actor was very weird, kind of meta, as they say. So very interesting. While he did have a promising acting career, it started to slow down and the corporate espionage business took off. The ruse job was supposed to have been temporary, but Kerbick became one of the world's best practitioners of this deceptive and often illegal trade. His income jumped from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars a year until the inevitable crash. He shared in this interview that he did wait until the statute of limitations was over to write this book. I certainly don't condone crimes, but anything for those of you who have heard me on this podcast as well as the one I had before. But I believe that we can learn a lot from people who have made mistakes. I mean, we've all made mistakes in our lives. I don't feel like any of them have bigger weight than others. I mean, there's a couple that definitely do, but for the most part, they don't. And I really appreciate people who are able to share their experiences and then help people, consumers, as well as businesses, be able to know how to protect themselves from people who they like they used to be. So that's exactly why I thought this would be a great conversation, especially because even though Robert calls it rusing, what we call it is social engineering. And social engineering has been around since the beginning of time. We've 
it's also connected to con men and everything else. But especially as online companies and online banking and e-commerce and all that, especially as fraud technology continues to get better to be able to detect fraud and bad actors online, more and more bad actors are moving to targeted customer service departments. Some are even targeting executives or other people within the company to get what they want. Sometimes it is something relatively small, like rerouting a package after an order has been approved. I mean, that package could be $10,000, it could be $20,000, but relatively small to committing account takeover at a bank and you know providing just enough information and a good enough story to convince the customer service agent to provide access to that bank account and be able to clear it out and get more credit in their name and all of that. We also know from Frank McKenna, and we talked about this a little bit in the New Year's predictions a few uh, weeks ago, where a lot more companies are being targeted, or I should say a lot more customer service agents are being targeted to be insiders within the company and to help bad actors be able to take advantage of that company in different ways. That's happening quite a bit. We're seeing it all over Telegram where they're saying, hey, I have an any at this bank. Let me know if you want transfers done or you want to change the address and the password to you know, a victim's account so only you have access, things like that. So I'll actually be talking more about some of these uh, newer and more popular social engineering tactics on Thursday's episode. There's especially one that I just recently learned about from a pretty large company that I think is worth talking about. And they shared it with me because, well, one, because they had some questions around how to handle it. But also, you know, I got their permission and obviously I'm not going to share any identifying information about that company. But I think it's good to know because it has worked a few times at this company. So once they find something that'll work, they'll try it again and again. So with that, uh, just a little bit about Robert, uh, my conversation with Robert today. He's going to tell the story of his accidental career as a corporate spy. He'll talk about some of his methods to access some of the biggest corporate secrets for their competitors all via the phone. And there was one person who he social engineered for, I think, over 10 years, and she never knew that he wasn't who he told her he was. It's pretty crazy. It wasn't just like a one and done. Sometimes it was gaining a friendship for a long time. He'll also share some of the ways that he's seeing social engineering target businesses with a huge impact, such as ransomware and the corporate espionage is still alive and well, even though he's out of the game, so to speak. Obviously, he's out of the game if he's writing a book about it, right? He also provided several tips to help you and your company be better prepared and prevent successful social engineering. I've heard Robert on a few other podcasts recently, and I have to say, I think he gave this audience some of the best tips for really helping your company not fall victim to this and kind of take a step back and think about it and apply some critical thinking that I think you'll find really interesting. And on that note, uh, in addition to working on his TV show that's in development, and he'll share a little bit about that towards the end of our conversation, he's also providing in-person and virtual corporate trainings, and he's an exceptional keynote for conferences. I think that we have all gone through kind of boring training I know, you know, whether it's social engineering or phishing or whatever else it is. And oftentimes you don't remember it. But when you hear it from someone who's entertaining and funny and engaging and who has done it themselves successfully to some of the biggest companies in the world, probably in a lot of your cases, probably targeting your companies at one time, even if it was a decade or two ago, you'll remember it more. 
So I think that it's a good opportunity to be able to learn more. All right, guys, I am going to get going and get ready to speak with you more on Thursday, but I am just so excited for you to hear this episode. It was one of my favorite interviews that I've had in a while, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Welcome back to Fraudology. I have a really exciting guest today. You know, usually we're talking with fellow fraud fighters in the online world. And today I thought it would be fun to learn from someone who did something a little different before the internet existed, but it actually a lot of the things that he did in his skill set are things that we need to learn about in our roles. So I'm really excited to welcome Robert Kerbeck. He is the author of the book Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. So Robert, thank you so much for joining me on Broadology. I'm excited to be here and I eventually would like to be known as a fraud fighter. You, we, we even have t-shirts. So. Uh, uh. Oh my goodness. Although that, <laughs> big nerd. that would be a dream come true. I want one of those. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. There's okay. a, our big Super Bowl of fraud is coming up soon and there will be some Ooh. I have to know. Wow. <laughs> I was just at the real Super Bowl because I'm from Philadelphia. We could talk about that in a minute. And unfortunately, my team lost, but it was an amazing game. I, yep, one of my closest friends, and she was actually on the podcast recently. She's a senior director of Fraud at Ticketmaster. She is also from Philly, and there are several other Eagles fans that listen to the podcast. And yeah, as a Seahawks, lifelong Seahawks fan, I know the joy of winning, and I know the challenges of losing, especially when you don't (laughs) feel like it's fair. So I can get that. (laughs) There's a lot of fraud that happens at the Super Bowl, too, but that's like a whole other story. (laughs) Wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, one time we can trail those stories, but... I really was fascinated by your story and would love for you to start, you know, you refer to yourself as a corporate spy uh, and saying that, you know, really at the basis of everything you did in learning information about very large companies was rusing. And what you refer to as rusing is what we refer to as social engineering, but they're all very similar. And one common truth that most people in my world in online fraud prevention have about all of our careers is that most of us fell into this by accident. And in the book, you do a really good job of setting the stage. And I didn't actually to have a pun there, but um, of how you fell into this career by accident. As I mentioned, I'm from Philadelphia and my great grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented. He became one of the first car dealers in Philadelphia. My grandfather took over that dealership. My dad took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. But when I was in college, I fell in love with acting. I thought about moving to New York to be an actor, but I didn't know anybody that had done that. It seemed insane to me. So I, when I graduated, I went to work for my dad at the dealership. And the kind of the trickery of car sales, the kind of the dishonesty of car sales, it just didn't feel right for me. So eventually I left. I moved to New York. And of course, as much of your audience knows, being an artist is difficult and you usually need some sort of survival job. And who stumbles into a career as a corporate spy? But that's what happened to me, which, of course, is ironic because corporate spying ended up being far more dishonest than car sales. That's actually exactly what I was going to say. The irony is that, you know, what kept you the bills paid and everything in car sales is what kept the bills paid as you were becoming an actor in New York in the mid 80s, right? No, it was later than that. It was okay. like early 90s. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Late 90s. You try to act. I, most everyone else was a waiter, but at least right. you didn't have to deal with some of those things. But you yeah, you fell into it. And I know that in the book, you say that you know the person who hired you would hire or at least audition 
hundreds of actors to do this for her. And really, there were only four of you that really became the rock stars. What were some of the qualities she was looking for? Why did she hire actors? And then what were you hired to do? Yeah. So, you know, she only hired actors. And the reason, of course, is because we could create personas, characters, we could do accents. We were great at improv. And one of the things about being a spy in the beginning, we actually went out in person and we would go to conferences. We would go to bars where we knew a certain firm, you know, hung out. But what we learned very quickly is that we could use, you know, what I called the ruse phone call, the social engineering phone call. We could use the anonymity of the phone to get much more information because if we could impersonate people, and I'm here to tell you, you know, I could call up today and all I need to hear is maybe five to 10 seconds of someone's voice. Hey, this is Rick Jones in compliance. Leave a message. Okay, I can do Rick Jones's voice. And so now all of a sudden you hear Rick Jones in compliance on the line. What are you going to do? You're going to tell Rick Jones anything and everything that he wants to know, because in corporate America, what are we taught? Be a good teammate, right? <laughs> and don't rock the boat, especially to the EVP of compliance or the chief technology officer or the head of legal, right? Especially if you've got a junior person on the phone, which, of course, is one of the things that rusers are doing is they're finding a way, they're finding the weak spot in your company. And then what we would do is we would get that person to tell us anything and everything that we wanted to know about the firm. And we obviously, we, we'd been hired or the woman who started the firm that hired me. We're hired by their rivals and they want to know, you know, again, going back to football, the analogy is what if you could get the playbook on your competitor two or three days before the big game, right? How valuable, right? That's invaluable. Yeah. And it's the same thing in corporate America. We know how competitive the Super Bowl is and football is and every sport is. Corporate America, the global economy, it is just as cutthroat, just as competitive. The C-level executives will do anything and everything to get information on their rivals that's going to increase their revenue, increase their stock price and increase the size of their bonus check. And I think, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast do work for a lot of those Fortune 100, 500 companies. They probably don't have visibility into those types of things, but there's things that we can assume happen. I know that, you know, you kind of first started working almost as a corporate recruiter, but in a different way or an executive search firm, right? These were pre-internet, pre-LinkedIn days. And it was important for the competitors to know, well, who is my competitor's top person who is right. doing in charge of sales or who is making the best trades or who is creating the new product that's going to make my competitor Correct. a lot of money. Yeah. Look, even today, I'm here to tell you even today, because one of the spies, obviously I wrote a book about being a corporate spy, so I don't spy anymore. But one of the spies that I trained back in the day, he's still out there and he's doing the same social engineering phone calls because even though LinkedIn is there, Generally, only maybe about 60 to 70 percent of executives are listed on LinkedIn. And even then, LinkedIn isn't telling you who are the rock stars at the firm, who are the people that are killing it at the firm. Like you said, who are the top salespeople? Who are the top traders? Who are the top bankers? Who are the top designers? Who are the top developers? Right. And what we would do is we would learn the actual statistics to back that up. So we would get the sales rankings. We would get their sales charts. We would get the revenues. We would get this, how much they paid everybody. We would see what their bonuses were. 
Because basically, and your audience probably knows this, almost all corporations have some way of ranking their employees. And we would learn how they rank their employees. And so think about it. Again, football. Tom Brady was with the New England Patriots. He left as a free agent. He went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They won the Super Bowl, right? Same thing in corporate America. If I can get your Tom Brady, right? You're not going to the playoffs anymore. I'm winning the Super Bowl, right? And so if we can identify the Tom Brady's in your organization, then we can go in and we can poach them. And you just think, about it's just invaluable when you lose two, three, four top people across your firm. And of course, my client's going to make sure they don't do it on the same day so that nobody kind of figures out that mm-hmm. this is what's happened. But it really is a game changer in terms of one firm moving from number seven in the rankings to number one or number two. It's interesting. I feel like I honestly thought that because of LinkedIn that you wouldn't need that. But you're right. There's a lot of people claiming to be Tom Brady out there that really aren't. Right. <laughs> but that is so true. That is so true. Look, people that go into an interview, are they ever going to tell you, hey, I'm number 27 on my team? No. Right. They're going to no. tell you they're number three, they're number two, they're number one. Everyone's going to tell you they're the top person. And so this is a way of you knowing exactly. And a lot of times what's what was shocking to my clients was that, you know, you would give them the rankings and the top person maybe they knew about because this guy had been around for 15 years. And then the second person, oh, they heard about this up and coming. It was a woman. She's been around for 11 years. But then all of a sudden there was this kid only been with the firm for a couple of years, but was killing it. That's the person we're going to go after because most likely they're underpaid right now. And so somebody else coming in and offering them a lot more money, they're going to leave in a heartbeat, right? And they're not so as loyal, right? They're not as loyal. They're relatively new. They're young in their career. And these are just some examples of the information that we were getting. You know, we would right. learn about products, new products. How much were they going to be priced at? When were they were coming out? Anything that our, every corporate spying project I've ever done was bespoke, custom. Mm-hmm. And the client would give us a laundry list of things that they would want to know. And we would find out not some of that information, not most of that information, all of that information. Wow. So just providing a couple of examples of how you would do that. So you mentioned that obviously starting with people that are maybe lower on the totem pole, so to speak, they're eager to please people with big titles within their company. I know a lot of times you would impersonate, to your point, you know, listening to someone's voicemail or, you know, now there's YouTube and all that, being able to you impersonate someone internally in their company is going to take down that guard, right? Absolutely. And what was interesting is my go-to, and every spy had a different kind of go-to accent, go-to ploy. Mine was to go executive to executive. So I would call, and remember, we're talking about, and by the way, we penetrated large companies and small companies, public companies and private companies. But most companies, even small companies, usually have multiple offices. And so there's a London office, there's a Charlotte office, there's a Tokyo office, Mm -hmm. there's a Frankfurt office. Mm -hmm. And so I could be somebody, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here and we need some information from the States. Oh, hey, Gerhard. Hey, you know, I I don't think I met you, but oh, oh, that's right. You were on that one call I was on. Yeah, hey, buddy, what, what, what do you need? Is anybody suspecting that someone is actually putting on a German accent or an Irish <laughs> accent or an English accent or a Southern accent? to imitate a person who really exists. No. And that's why in my entire career, when I did the German accent, do you know how many times people said nine? Zero. (laughs) Yeah. So you're now getting an executive who knows so much information. Mm -hmm. He knows it all. 
in his office, in his region. And now you get access to all of that information because this guy believes you're on the same team. And, you know, again, these ploys, even though my book is basically, you know, early 90s into the late 2010s, it's still the same today. Because like I said, when my book was coming out, my, my old spy, the guy I trained, called me in a panic, basically saying, oh, my God, your book is going to ruin corporate spying and the corporate <laughs> spying is going to be over. And I was, I said, are you kidding me? I'm like, you really think my book is going to stop corporate spying? I'm like, it's money's you know, good. And also fraud and yeah. also ransomware attacks, because it's basically the same thing. It's just a continuation or maybe a slightly different branch of the tree. As we discussed a little bit before the call, social engineering is a huge part of ransomware. You know, these teams, really better to call them gangs, they have multiple people and each person, it's a little bit like a mission impossible. They have different skill sets and there is on those teams always the social engineer. And that person is calling, especially stateside gangs, right? They are calling and they are learning stuff. They're getting information. They're figuring out all this stuff as much as they can, because the more information they give to the hacker, the easier it is, right? It, the yeah. easier it is. And then once the hacker's done what they've done, then there's the financial instruments expert who's making sure that how they're going to get that money so that they don't get caught. So it's not, you know, so they're all these different people. It's not just one person. And something I also found interesting in listening to another interview that you did is in using ransomware as an example, you've found that is a very good ruse for their competitors to hire someone similarly to how you were hired to get information over the phone. Now, they may not specifically say, hey, I want you to put a ransomware attack on my competitor and make all of their systems shut down for a day. We also see this with DDoS attacks and other things like that and shutting down the systems for a while. But they might just say, hey, I happen to know you might have a special set of skills. Maybe can you help me with this? And that can be millions or billions of dollars, not to mention the loss of customer trust, right? If you can't have your website up 24-7, why am I going to yeah. bank with you? Why don't I bank with yeah. someone else? Look, it's only a matter of time before there's a story in the news followed shortly thereafter by a major movie where we see a corporation make a decision to hire a ransomware gang to shut down arrival. Yeah. I would not be surprised that that's happened already. It's just a matter of having it, it, a public. It, right? it has. Right. It has happened. It has happened. And it's just that we live in an era now where there's so much embarrassment and about when you get shut down. And then also, if you do admit it, if you do come forward, like you said, now you lose all credibility as a brand, as, as a company. Weak you're seen as weak. So you, you're not going to say anything about it, but it's happening. And eventually some journalist is going to find out about this and they're going to tell the whole story. And we're all going to be fascinated to see that corporations are actually paying people to do that to their rivals. Yeah, I definitely, I think back to the shame just of victims in general, we see it all the way from consumers who will get scammed on the phone from having to send thousands of dollars in gift cards to the Social Security Administration or the IRS. That's social engineering at its finest. I mean, honestly, they're probably the lower level, but they're doing it in droves and they kind of lose that critical thinking piece of, wait, why is the IRS, why didn't they ever get a letter in the mail? Why are they calling me? Why are they asking for iTunes gift cards or whatever it is? And that was something um, towards the beginning of your book, you talked about when you were being trained and the woman that was training you was using an Irish accent. And halfway through, 
when she was asking different questions, she lost her Irish accent and you called her out on it afterwards, especially as an actor, right? Like you broke character. But yeah. she basically said like once they're under your spell and you don't ask for everything up front, yeah. right? And once they're under your spell, they don't, they lose that critical thinking. Yeah. And look, I think that's what your audience might find most interesting about my yes. book. I mean, it's a fun read. It reads like a spy novel, even though everything in it is true. But I think one thing people might get out of it is they're going to see these ploys as they're happening mm -hmm. because the ploys, the social engineering, you know, the con, you know, from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 5,000 years ago, it's the same con. It's how do you convince someone to believe that you're something you're not? And you see the same kind of things where you were going to say there's an emergency, right? We're going to say that we need it right now. We're going to say I'm really important. And so you better do this or you're going to you're going to get in trouble. Like all the same kind of things that scammers, con men do to get people to to give them information. It hasn't changed. And I think your audience is going to get some insight into what the tricks are, because, again, as we discussed earlier, there is a tremendous focus in cybersecurity on the technology, on the technical side. Great. Wonderful. But the balance is way off, right? The balance of time, effort, money, training, education on the technology side. And yet the human side is really ignored. And if I can call a junior analyst in customer service and I can get them to tell me anything I want to know, I can get them to tell me their password. I can, you know, whatever, all the things that I can get from this person that doesn't know better because nobody's trained them properly. It's basically you've put a fortress up at the front door and then the back door, there's like a broken door handle on it and no lock. <laughs> yeah. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... Other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. I see it all the time with different types of fraud strategy and often we'll see it first on the technical side because there's actually on the fraud side anyway, it depends on 
what they're trying to target and who they're trying, all these different factors. But a lot of them are much more comfortable behind a computer screen. So picking up the mm-hmm. phone is terrifying for them. But there definitely are people who, you know, they're friends with or who are in their groups or, you know, how or they can hire them on Telegram very easily through fraud as a service where they can hire them and say, hey, I can't get through anywhere. Right. And I see this all the time with you know, retailers or other companies online where they have had a vulnerability for a while. So come so fraudsters have learned how to really make money off of their business model. Right. And once they have a setup of customers down the line who want to rebuy, you know, whether they're buying uh, concert tickets or Super Bowl tickets or whether they're buying Apple products or whatever that is, once they have already figured out how to monetize your business, they're not going away anytime soon because they're now very motivated to stay there. So you close up that gap and you find them starting to do other things. And once they realize I cannot get through with all of my technical skills, almost 100 percent, they either them or someone they know is going straight for the phone and they are social engineering those customer service agents. And it is. I'm with you. And I shared that with you right before we started recording is that's something that's very frustrating, but fascinating to me as well is, you know, all these very large companies that are spending millions of dollars to protect their billions. And it makes perfect sense. And you're constantly trying to optimize your strategies and improve your risk stack and all these other things. And then, oh, but customer service, their entire job is to please the customers. And they're often, you know, the lowest paid, but they have the keys to the kingdom. And maybe they get one training course on a video that's really boring a year on social engineering. They certainly aren't getting to learn from someone who's exciting and who has lived a crazy, you know, really fun life like you have, but also knows all the same tricks that every fraudster, right? It's the same book of tricks. They're just maybe saying different. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I tell people all the time and I've spoken to at RSA and hey, give me four, give me 45 minutes and I can find out pretty much whatever I want to know about your company, you know, mm-hmm. about the technology, about the executives, about products, you know, whatever you want to know, 45 minutes, I'm going to be able to penetrate your firm using the good old fashioned social engineering phone call. Yeah. And I believe you. I mean, you proved it so many times and you're absolutely right. Your book does read like a spy novel, but is all true. I mean, I think you obviously changed the names of the companies. And I told you I do the same thing. I'm never my grandfather used to say, if you ain't said nothing, you ain't said nothing. So, you know, (laughs) very profound. He's a wise man. (laughs) Yeah. Look, obviously, I knew writing this book, even though I waited for the statute of limitations to expire on any potential crimes that I may or may not have committed, I knew that even if I wrote about a firm and I used their real name, even if I could prove here are the paychecks that they paid me, here are the emails from the executives I dealt with, which I have all of that stuff, they could still sue me into oblivion. And I just did not want to have some major firm with 50 attorneys on staff making my life miserable. And so the publisher, Penguin Random House, and I sat down. We just said, look, we're just going to change the names. Now, look, if you're in the business and you study the firm names, you're probably going to be get a, able to get a good sense of the companies that... <laughs> yeah, there are a couple, that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That actually makes it an Easter egg hunt for those of us that, you know, have that investigative brain. So I think that's one of the many reasons why my audience will really enjoy it is because, yeah, you can cut, you you know, not that the average person would, but you go, oh, okay, that's probably based on what they're asking, based on the time frame, based on the word. Okay. But no, I'm I'm the same way because I'm so lucky to have so many companies trust me with their information, but I am terrified of all their lawyers. I never want to have to use my professional services insurance. But at the same time, I'm glad it's there, right? But never want to have to use it. 
But at the same time, there's so much you can learn without knowing the name. I think actually too often, if you attach a big company name to a story, it becomes about the company and not the lesson. And so I actually really appreciated that we know that they're true, but we don't know that this was that company or that company that we all know, because then it becomes about that and not your skill set of rusing and how it can be applied to so many different. And I'm here to tell you in my day as a spy, again, I said earlier, I spied for small companies, medium sized company, large company, private company, public company, companies in the U.S., companies all over the world. I did spying in Russia. I did spying in Brazil. I did spying in China. I did spying in Japan and industries, pharmaceutical industry, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, industrial, automotive, you know, you name it. And so basically what I learned from that is all companies hire spies. Hmm. Now they're going to, they're not going to admit that. And of course they're smart. They always do it to almost always do it through an intermediary firm, usually through the consulting firm. They'll hire a consulting firm that hires us or through the executive recruiting firm, hire spies. I'm here to tell you, I have personally presented my, what I call my extracted data to individuals that today are one step from being CEOs of two of the largest companies in the world. And they were very excited when I came in and I had this great data. One one of the gentlemen said, this is so actionable. That that doesn't surprise me at all. And like you said, they would deny it to the grave. You both know the truth. And I actually, it's funny, I was talking with a client the other day who the name of someone who works for one of their competitors came up because they had posted something on LinkedIn that I thought that my client would find interesting. And they said, oh, yeah, I know that person. They went through an interview with us and we ended up not hiring them, but it was for our like client intel or not something intelligence department. And it wasn't so much mm-hmm. like about clients. It was more like almost like competitors, but I can't remember what the name of the team was. And I said, so was there really a job position or were you just interviewing him to get information about what products he's working on? And he looked at me shocked, like he goes, who would do that? And I said, just started reading this book by Robert yeah. Herbeck called Rose. And I think a lot of people do that. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's another lesson in there in the book, which is when you get that job interview and you're all excited and it's took yeah. wow, this is going to be a big promotion and there's a lot more money. I got some maybe some bad news for you is that sometimes it's a fishing expedition and sometimes the executive recruiting firm is bringing you in to just because they're spying. They're trying to learn secrets about your firm and you're so excited about what you do. And you're so excited about this potential new job that you're just blah, 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 spilling all of these secrets. And again, that's a form of rusing in corporate spying that is very common. It's basically the fake job interview. And I'm so glad that you shared that because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast do work for very large companies and they are often brought in to work on fraud strategy or the payments acceptance piece or something similar for new geographies or new products or new business models for their company that will definitely impact the stock price. A joke that I always try to stay away from the stock market because I'm terrified of insider trading issues because I'm often asked about to help with those things as well. And so I can absolutely see product managers of large tech companies, especially right now with the way the job market is going in and talking about themselves, not at all talking about their company, but at the same, I mean, at least to them, they're not, you know, because they're in not, they're not in the frame of mindset of I need to protect my company right now. They're not on the job. They're not on the clock. They're talking about themselves. I can see how, yeah, I have a feeling now that everyone's going to be 
doing a little more investigating on who's interviewing them if they're doing that. I, I, I always say that when you're in a job interview, you should be the one asking the questions, not the other way around. I very much agree with that, too. I actually had a, an episode with a good friend of mine who recently left Apple to go work at Google. And so in the two weeks, you know, obviously, when you work for one of them and you say, hey, I'm going to the next one. You're told, hey, we'll pay you out for your two weeks. We don't want you anywhere near the computer. Yeah. Even though I always think that's funny because that person knew that they were going to give their notice before they gave their notice. So they probably, if they were going to take anything, would have taken it before then. But that's <laughs> always like, I don't understand that rule, especially when the rule exists. But whatever. Problem with common sense, not always common, right? But yeah, my good friend Jacqueline Hart, she talked about that a few weeks or a few months ago when she was on a break in between those two companies was about the questions that she asks in a job interview and how important that is. And I thought it was very helpful for those of us who may not always think about those things, right? Because we came into this role by accident, we never really expected to make it up to high positions. A lot of us did in many ways. I certainly, I certainly didn't expect to go from an $8 an hour survival job to making millions of dollars a year as what people have described. Some of the reviews say I'm the world's greatest corporate spy. I don't know that there's a competition that we could actually prove, but um, take the compliment. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think while I don't think a lot of us will be at that range, it's very impressive. And so just circling back, I know that you, uh, you know, in addition to writing your book and having that available and I'll give your website and all of that information in the show notes, you also are speaking at conferences and providing social engineering training to large corporations. And I believe in that so much and think that mm -hmm. it's something that every company needs to invest in. And I also know from an education perspective, you know, I do a lot of trainings as well. I know that it needs to be interesting or else no one's going to yes. remember it. it so that's, yeah. A big reason why I wanted you to come on is you know, really to share why it's so important and what the risks are if companies don't invest in this, right? Look, and thank you so much that the, my favorite thing about my story, and obviously I'm a little prejudiced, but I wrote the book during COVID. Obviously, it was a terrible time. And so I said, I'm going to write something that's fun. I'm going to write something that's a page turner. And, you know, it really does. It reads like a spy novel. It's cr the shenanigans, the hijinks, the ploys. The compliance ploy, the inside ploy, the dropping the grapefruit ploy, you know, they're all in there and you can learn from all of them. And so I think that taking that out onto the roads, so to speak, and speaking in front of people, speaking in front of large groups, I always find that I learn something much better when I'm entertained. And so mm -hmm. when I can do my crazy accents, I can bring somebody out of the audience and we can role play. We can do like a spy improvisational thing where all of a sudden you're the customer service person and I'm calling you and you're trying to tell me no. And every single thing you say, I'm turning around and spinning it around and the pe people can go, wow, how do I handle such a situation? You know, yeah. boy, it's really tricky. It's really challenging. And so we can give people tools in real time in a way that's fun for them. So it's part educational thing and part like comedy act where I think people come out of it and they're not, they're definitely not bored and they're definitely learning. Wow, this stuff is out there. This stuff can really hurt my firm. I had a hospital. They have six locations. A junior person basically clicked on something, shouldn't have clicked on, blah, 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 blah. I won't go through the whole long story, but and basically their firm systems were frozen. They couldn't book an appointment. Doctors couldn't book an appointment. They couldn't schedule an x-ray. They couldn't schedule a surgery. Think about that. It's insane, right? And it's all because junior person was not trained, proverbial, don't click on any text, don't click on any email, don't click on the, you know, <laughs> and, and I have, again, in the book, I talk about when we were kids, we had the five second rule, you drop the gum, 
your mom could put it back in your mouth if it was five seconds or less. Yeah. Okay, we're a little we're a little older now. So I have like a 30 second rule, which is when you get the crazy email, you get the crazy text, mm. you get the crazy phone call, 30 seconds. You don't give any information up. Mm. You don't click on anything. You don't, you don't do anything for 30 seconds. You put the phone down, you close the laptop, you walk away from your desk and you just think about it. And guarantee you think about it for 30 seconds because you're already, there's something in you from the second you see it that is like- right. Makes you be that. Oh, there's some right, but we're we're so used to just bam, click it, bam, hit it, bam, do it, and we've just got it. We just got to catch ourselves, and so that thirty second thing, I think, is, to think is really helpful to mitigate the type of issues that can come as a result of this type of cybercrime. I'm so glad that you say that. I think it's so important because, yeah, everyone, we're on autopilot. We're doing things quickly. We're all about the just instant gratification. And, oh, we don't want to leave this email hanging, et cetera. But as we just talked about, once you're under the spell, once you've given into the email, once you've given into the phone call and you've given that first set of information, now they know that you'll give the rest. So taking Correct. that break before you even do it, I think is really smart and good yeah. advice. And, you know, once I get someone to tell me one thing, it's all downhill from there. And in a weird sort of way, I've now made you my mold. The other word you used earlier, you're my innie now, yeah. you know, where now I've got you as a spy for me. And by the way, I can call you back anytime I want. Now, sometimes I'll call back and then that person is, wait a second now, I mentioned something to my super. Yeah, that happens, of course. But I'm here to tell you, and from reading the book, I had moles. Sit down now, listener. I had moles for 20 years. Yeah. And they did not know. They did not know they were a mole. They weren't getting paid. They just believed me from the first time I called and they believed me straight for 20 years. Now, that was pretty rare. I think it was one person in the book that I start with her and end with her. But there were many other moles I had maybe for two years, maybe for five years. And then I could get them. And again, listener, I hope you're still seated. I could get them to find out information for me. So let's say they didn't know something. They didn't know the answer to this or they didn't know. Yeah. So they go, oh, you know what? I know who might know. And I'd say, well, and they'd say, it's so-and-so. Why don't you call them? I'd say, you know what? How about this? Just put me on hold. And why don't you call them and ask, here are the questions I want you to ask them. And now I've made them my spy. Right. These are all things for the fraud people out there that are real, that are really happening. And unless the human beings are trained and educated, all the technology in the world is for naught. A hundred percent. And I think that a lot of times those of us in fraud prevention, especially, you know, that have been in it for a long time or those that are in leadership positions, we get confident and cocky that we can identify yeah. social engineering very quickly. Actually, there's a big joke among merchants. They're the ones who have the big online companies. And then there's solution providers that are obviously trying to sell these multi-million dollar contracts to them. And the first time I did a survey, I just wanted to understand I have lots of conversations with both sides and both sides get frustrated with each other because they don't understand each other. And the merchants are saying, you guys are so slimy and I actually want to learn about your product, but you're not doing it in the right way. You're making me distrust you. And the vendors are saying, no, you don't understand. We can solve all your problems. You just have to give us a chance. What it comes down to in the very first survey I asked, someone put it in such good language. They were they said, don't you understand that every sales book that comes out and every sales podcast is just basically teaching social engineering? And we can identify that. So we see you as a threat. It's been a couple of times where I'll be in a room with a few different online companies and they'll say, was there like a new book or a new sales guru that said that every salesperson should just say, hey, I want to pick your brain for 10 minutes. I don't want to pitch anything. <laughs> 
because we all got that email from a bunch of different companies or whatever that is, because we're also good at pattern recognition, right? But I think that because we get comfortable, because we think that all social engineering calls are going to be like this, or they're going to be asking for that favor right away. And it's not that they're going to be building that relationship over time or that they're going to, they'll do this and this, but they won't ever do that. Well, that's, it's not the case. And I'm so glad that you're sharing that here on the podcast. But I mean, like you said, you have so many more examples of it in in your book. And it's a fun read. And we don't get those a lot in our industry. Of course, part of the book, right? Because it's obviously, you know, the main part of the book is about corporate spying and corporate espionage. But at the same time, I was a professional actor. Yes. I did over 50 major TV shows. I did take J-Lo out on a date. So Kevin's got me hit on you. Are we allowed to say that? Yes, we are allowed to say that. Yeah, yeah. Dance with O.J. Simpson before he became the world's most infamous murderer in this crazy exercise video, which was introduced to evidence in his trial. When they did the TV series a couple of years ago, The People versus O.J., they recreated the exercise video which means an actor got hired to play me in the video, which is a kind of a minor claim to fame. So, yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of the cool thing about the book, too, is there are all of these insane celebrity behind the scenes encounters where you see people, Kevin Spacey doing what Kevin Spacey did. You see O.J. Simpson and you see the anger and rage that he had beneath mm-hmm. the surface. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there that, was one... yeah so it, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so Ruse is it's two books in one, so to speak. It is. Yeah. And I'm so glad you went there because that's exactly where I was when I was going to ask you next. I think there was one very famous actor that your story surprised me the most about them. And I'll tell you about that after a recording, I'm sure. But it's similar to how, you know, any industry, right? You kind of know, oh, yeah, Bob, he's going to do this or, oh, yeah, Susie, they always do that because you lived in that world and you were around them so much. You were also in a really big music video on MTV. I mean, it was just, it's interesting. Your life is like two books in one. I'm sure that at some point that claim to fame and gratitude for all the fun opportunities in acting, but also that you have this other skill set and experience that can help carry you throughout as well. And, you know, they can add to the dynamics of who you are as a person. Yeah, that's it. So you're saying that about my corporate spying skills? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you. your yeah. acting like- skills informed your corporate spying skills, but I think your corporate spying skills can also, you know, because I think the problem with acting is that you're always waiting, you're waiting on someone else to make a decision for you. Your fate is in yeah. someone else's hands. And I think that would be very frustrating and discouraging. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know what that was. And I know that there was a time in your life where you kind of had to come to terms with that. And especially seeing a lot of the people that you acted with now be these huge stars with Oscars and everything else. When you saw them when they were on their last dollar or 10 bucks or whatever, right, right, I thought it'd yeah, be weird. Yeah. Huh. OK, that's a sliding door moment. There's probably a lot of them. But I do think that, yeah, your corporate spying experience has lent itself to having a second career where they inform each other, but can also help people. And not to say acting doesn't help people, but training corporations and companies uh, and sharing these examples definitely helps, especially these times where there's a scam around every corner and there's a fraud news around every corner and on every phone call. Yeah. And look, I'm a former corporate spy and I get fished and I get things and I get phone calls. And I have to tell you, every once in a while, I'm going like, this is pretty good. So if I'm going to click on it or I'm going to give something up, think about someone that maybe 
hasn't had the level of experience and training that I've had as a spy, you know, young person or an older person, you really see that. And so I'm glad I've switched over from offense to defense now. And so I'm happy, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm not necessarily proud of the career I had, but it is a hell of a crazy fun story. Absolutely. And one more clarifying question that I meant to ask you earlier, you did say that you intentionally, and I think that makes perfect sense, waited till, you know, any statute of limitations were over before you published the book. But I don't get the sense that everything you did or that the large percentage of what you did was actually a crime, right? You weren't stealing identities. You weren't stealing payment methods. You were stealing information. But I mean, is it is it black and white or is it somewhere in the middle? Or does it look, I definitely look forward to having you represent me at trial because I think I, that's what I need. That kind of he didn't do anything wrong. Look, see much it, worse. Maybe that's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that's what. Yeah. And, and yes, thank you. And that's you. I think that's why the story is fun, because the stuff I'm doing, it's not I'm not stealing the credit card numbers of old ladies. I'm not robbing money from people's bank accounts. It's corporate America. It's a lot of people are like, hey, you know, it's dog eat dog out there. And this guy figured out a way to support himself as an actor. And then eventually, again, I had no idea this was going to turn into a $2 million a year job. I had no right. idea. So yeah, I think it's it was in the dark gray at the end of the day. And I don't want to ruin it for any readers or, or listeners because the book is on Audible. But we had some close calls with the authorities. And uh, I'm glad that we I did not go to jail. But there were some times where it looked pretty bleak and it was frightening because yeah, we thought it was in the dark gray. We thought we were safe. And then all of a sudden people were going, oh, no, uh-uh, you're impersonating real people to get financial benefit. That's illegal. That's illegal. Right. And I think at the end of the I think at the end of the day, it was. But I also think on the scale of fraud, it wasn't high. It wasn't a nine or a 10. So let's say it was a 7.5 or an eight. <laughs> and so the authorities are so focused on the nines and tens. And let's be honest, they're really focused only on the tens. I was going to say, or the twelves. I, or the, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the number two of investigations of the Secret Service on the podcast and DHS as well. They were both on together a month or two ago and they were honest. I would love to see a world, and this is particularly in the States because the EU and UK are starting there, but where we have a totally separate federal law enforcement agency for cyber crimes and financial crimes because Right now, they all kind of split it with each other and it really depends on who gets it and all that. But it also, when there's violent crimes and there's terrorism involved, and let's be clear, a lot of financial fraud is funding all of that internationally Correct. as well as yep. domestic. And yep. a lot of us know way more than we wish we knew about all of that. But I think that it's, yeah, to your point, yeah, it, that's, I guess that's what I meant. I certainly didn't mean to like belittle it. Those of us in this world on the fraud fighter side have a very strong moral compass and sense of justice. And sometimes we do get conflicted because a lot of financial fraudsters, people stealing credit cards and using them on websites or with, you know, stealing identities and opening up credit cards. They always justify it the same way you did. Of Oh, this is corporate right. America. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm stealing from them. But death by a million paper cuts is still a death. But uh, right. yeah, yeah, but and, I really, and, yeah. And in the book, of course, you've read it. I reckon with the moral issues. I don't run away from them. I come clean. I admit it. I'm telling you everything in the book. Yeah, you know, that's why like I, I said you on. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a moment in the book where my child hears me rusing on the phone. And that was like my come to Jesus moment where I'm like, oh, my God. I got to stop doing this. And that was when I'm like, okay, and began to extricate myself and get out of the career. And, and then obviously waited long enough to write this book. And I'm really pleased with how well it's done and that people like you bring me on to your show. And 
it's in development for a TV series. I wanted to make sure I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. It's, it's in. It's insane. But again, the story is so crazy. Wannabe actor becomes the world's greatest corporate spy. It's like you you can't Pretty, make that. You don't write it. And we are living in quite the scam culture right now. As much yeah. as we are upset and hate how much our grandparents and ourselves and everyone else is being targeted and you know successfully becoming victims of scams, we also can't look away from the Tinder swindler right. or inventing yeah. Anna or anything else. I'm excited for you for that as well. I mean, obviously, if you ever need an expert in credit card fraud or online technology, you know who to talk to or I know. I thought, I thought you were going to say an actress. I thought you were oh, going to say, oh, okay. <laughs> I, think there's a, I think there's a role for you, actually. I think to play the lead guy's girlfriend, maybe, you know. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Now you're just flattering your those. Now I know you're rusing. <laughs> now I know you're well alive <laughs> very comfortably. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh-huh. But uh, thank you so much again, Robert, for your time. And this was such a fun conversation. And I'm like I said, I'll put all the information on how to contact you within the show notes. But can you also share, obviously, people want to read the book. How can they learn more about you? All of those things. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, I just send people to my website, robertkerbeck.com, K-E-R-B-E-C-K. You can obviously buy Ruse there. You can buy my previous book there. And you can see the trailer for Ruse so you can get a sense of what the TV show is going to look like. And I think that's a, the trailer's a lot of fun. Oh, how awesome. I actually haven't seen that. Do you have, I mean, I know that it's quite far in development and down the pipe. Do you have any idea when it's going to come out? Has it been picked up? I know that is quite the process. And you probably know it. It is quite the process. <laughs> Yeah, it is. But there's a production company attached. There's a showrunner yeah. attached. But what you what happens is when the show, when the people like the show, when the studio likes the show, they go, OK, we like the pilot. Now give us the whole first season. And you, and then you give them that and they go, oh, we love this. What would the future seasons like? Like you're literally it's you're literally creating they call it the Bible. Yeah. And it's basically what five to seven years of the show would look like. And it's in, an insane document, but they want to see that because they want to know that theoretically, because obviously the longer a show runs, the more money the studio makes. Um, and we've all seen um, TV so, shows where the first year is amazing. And then the second year and the third year or right. the fifth year, are like this is so far away from where you started. But at the same time, you're doing so much work in advance just for the hope I know. that they even pick it up for one season. So I know. Show me it's the money, incredible. guys. Ugh. But, yeah. You know. Yeah, it is. It's incredible. But yeah, but, you know, it's like I said, you know, it's pretty far down the road. So knock on wood that we get to the pot of gold under the rainbow. Yes. And if that doesn't work out, you can always fall back. But I don't think you'd want to, though. And that's something I appreciate is, you know, we've all made mistakes and I'm just grateful. I haven't had to come glean to all of mine publicly. And so I think I always have admiration for people who do and who say, hey, I made mistakes. But because I did, I can help others. And so I very much appreciate that about you and your story. And I'm so grateful that you stopped by and stay in touch if you want to come back and talk about the TV show or anything else that comes up. Oh, I'd love uh, to. Thank you. Really yeah, that'd fun. be fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope to see you at a conference sometime soon, too. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Bye. Thank you. 
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.